Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 20, Philippa of Hainaut, The Almost Perfect Queen. Before I start this week, I want to first thank all of you for all your support so far. It really helps me get through the long evenings in the library doing research to know that so many of you are enjoying the show. Now, I hate asking for reviews because it's super lame, but if you haven't done so already, I'd really be grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes. It helps to bring new listeners to the show, and it is the greatest favour that you could give me. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get on with the show. To start with, we have to go back to 1322. Edward II had just won the Dispenser War, and was at the high point of his entire reign. With his enemies seemingly defeated, he looked to his succession and the future of his line. Now, of course, he already had a son and heir, the twelve-year-old future Edward III, but he was not yet betrothed. With relations with France rocky, to say the least, a foreign marriage could be just the ticket to securing a vital continental ally. Not that it had helped him much with his marriage to a French princess, of course, but, you know, maybe this would work. His attention was drawn to the court of the Count of Hainaut. Now, Hainaut, as you may remember, was a county in the Low Countries and was at that time under the auspices of the Holy Roman Emperor. Its count was also Count of Holland and Zealand, and so ruled a sizable portion of modern Belgium and Netherlands. This meant that it controlled vital channel ports and was also a thriving hub of trade, most notably taking in British wool and turning it into textiles. This made it a useful ally for England, or, perhaps more pertinently, it was someone whose friendship they did not want to lose should their conflict with France escalate. Edward, therefore, sent ambassadors to Hainaut, where they inspected the Count's four daughters. This is a timely reminder of just how far from a love match this was. This was more like window shopping of preteen girls, which is more than a little creepy when you think about it. Anyway, this ambassador came away with a description of the daughter whom he deemed most suitable. Now, for many centuries, we thought that this was Philippa, but modern historians such as Ian Mortimer have deduced that it was probably his eldest daughter, Margaret, since that would really make more sense since she was the eldest. We don't actually have a good description of what Philippa looked like, but we do have this description of her sister, so maybe she would have looked a bit like this. Quote, The lady whom we saw has not uncomely hair, betwixt blue-black and brown. Her head is clean-shaped, her forehead high and broad, and standing somewhat forward. 
Her face narrows between the eyes, and the lower part of her face is still more narrow and slender than her forehead. Her eyes are blackish-brown and deep. Her nose is fairly smooth and even, save that it is somewhat broad at the tip and also flattened, and yet it is no snub nose. Her nostrils are also broad, her mouth fairly wide, her lips somewhat full, and especially the lower lip. Her teeth, which have fallen and grown again, are white enough, but the rest are not so white. The lower teeth project a little beyond the upper, yet this is little seen. Her ears and chin are comely enough, her neck and shoulders and all her body are well set and unmaimed, and naught is amiss as so far as a man may see. Moreover, she is brown of skin all over, and much like her father, and in all things, she is pleasant enough, as seems to us. Now, if Edward's initial interest was in Margaret, then he would have been disappointed, as she would be married after the Holy Roman Emperor in 1324. And it is possible that Edward may have messed around the count a bit, as there seemed to be sufficient bad blood between the two men that, when Isabella came looking for allies in 1325 for her invasion, she found a willing ally in the Count of Hainaut. But one of his main conditions was the marriage of young Prince Edward to his second daughter, Philippa. So, who was this woman? Well, she was born in 1314 or so to William, Count of Hainaut, and Joan of Valois. Now, of course, at this point, the House of Valois was just a cadet branch of the ruling French Capetian royal house, but of course, in 1328, Philip VI would become King of France, the first Valois king. Philip was Philippa's first cousin, and while those connections would become important, for now, no one really thought too much about it. We know almost nothing about her upbringing. In fact, all I've been able to find out is that she was described as being, quote, sensibly brought up by a sensible mother. The courtly culture at Hainaut would have been dominated by French literature, and given the wealth of Hainaut, it would have been a fairly comfortable upbringing for Philippa. She was one of eight children, and as I said, the second daughter, so not a huge amount would have been expected of her. That is, until her betrothal to Prince Edward in 1326, an act that just in of itself amounted to a declaration of war. And we all know from two episodes ago how all that worked out for King Edward. Jean Fouissard has a rather fanciful account of the first time that Prince Edward and Philippa met. Isabella and Edward were brought to Valenciennes, one of the main cities in Hainaut, and there the Queen was brought before the Count, who, quote, "...received her with great joy, and likewise did his wife, and feasted her nobly. And this Count had four fair daughters, Margaret, Philippa, Joan, and Isabel, among whom the young Edward set most his love and company on Philippa, and also the young lady, in all honour, was more conversant with him than any of her sisters." Now, there was a sticking point in the match. Well, other than the fact that it amounted to war with England. Edward and Philippa were first cousins. We've had issues with consanguinity in the past on this show, and people have raised issues with marriages between couples far less closely related than Edward and Philippa. Remember William the Conqueror and Matilda of Flanders? The Pope kicked up a fuss about their marriage because Matilda's grandfather Baldwin IV's first wife was her grandmother, but whose second wife was a daughter of Richard II of Normandy, who was William's grandfather. Eleanor of Aquitaine had had her first marriage annulled because they were third cousins. I mean, in a lot of places in the world today, marriage between first cousins is still considered incestuous. But of course, objections to those previous marriages were not really based on canon law. They were all about politics, and so it would be with this one. It did take a little time and money to get the appropriate papal dispensation, but eventually Isabella obtained it for her son in September 1327. But then, of course, Isabella and Mortimer had overthrown King Edward, but things were still a little dicey, so it wasn't until December that Philippa's uncle John came back from England to fetch her. 
She landed on the 23rd of December and made her entrance into London on Christmas Eve, where she was reunited with her fiancé. Now, technically, they had already been married by proxy earlier that year, but it would not do in the long run, and in January 1328, they tied the knot in person at York Minster. Now, for the next three years or so, Philippa was, much like her husband King Edward, very much subordinate to Isabella and Mortimer. The extent to which she was powerless is shown when she attempted to do a bit of queenly intercession. I've already talked a lot about intercession before on this show. It was something very much expected of a queen, and something that Philippa would be well known for later in life. In this case, as a favour, she attempted to get a woman admitted to a convent as a lay sister, but she got the following indignant reply from the prioress. Quote, no queen has ever asked such a thing of our little house before, and, if it may please of your debonair highness to know of our simple state, we are so poor as God and everyone knows that what we have would not suffice for our little necessities in performing the service of God day and night, if, by the aid of our friends, we were charged with seculars without lessening the number of our religious. Can you imagine that prioress saying something like that to Isabella? but she was dealing with a powerless teenage queen of a kingdom dominated by her mother-in-law. This dressing down says a lot about Philippa's position. It was also shown by the delay in arranging her coronation. Isabella, you see, was still the only crowned queen in the kingdom, and it seems she was reluctant to share that honour with Philippa. Therefore, it was three full years between Philippa's marriage and coronation. In normal circumstances, they would have taken place at the same time, They had the means and opportunity, but Isabella just didn't want to. It was not until March 1330 that Philippa was formally crowned, a coronation perhaps accelerated because she was pregnant, and her future child's legitimacy would have been brought into doubt had it not been delivered by a crowned queen. Philippa may have been fairly powerless, but she was endearing herself to her subject. After all the innuendo and moral conduct exhibited by Isabella and Edward II during their lives, It was nice to have a nice, meek, unassuming queen again, of unimpeachable moral fibre. She also did not make the mistake made by some of her predecessors, most notably Eleanor of Provence, and bring a whole host of people from back home with her to England. She in fact brought very few, though that may have had more to do with the fact that she was allotted very little income in her early years as queen. The dower lands assigned to the Queen of England were still in the hands of Isabella, and with rebellion always on the horizon, she was not about to give those up to some teenager. But of course, not bringing all those followers with her did mean that she did not have to tax the kingdom to pay for her upkeep, nor were foreign princes suddenly having undue influence on English foreign policy. With the foreign Isabella making all things foreign unpopular in England at the time, Philippa taking the opposite route made for a good start. Her first child was born in June 1330, and joy of all joys, it was a boy. A healthy boy at that. They named him Edward because they have no imagination, and, as I mentioned in the last show, his birth was one of the catalysts that led to his father overthrowing Mortimer and Isabella and establishing his personal rule. Philippa had paid no part in the coup, but she did benefit from it in many ways. Firstly, she was now the preeminent woman in the kingdom. Isabella was for the moment under house arrest, and it would be many years before Edward would trust her enough to let her out. Secondly... She benefited financially, as Isabella was compelled to release those dower lands to Philippa, giving her a decent independent income for the first time. This child would also not be the last. Philippa was yet another productive queen when it came to children, with her giving birth to 14 children over the next 25 years. 14! 
Now, five of these did not make it past their first year, but the rest all made it at least into their teenage years, including five sons. Now, these five sons will become very important. We have already introduced the first, Edward, whose exploits in battle and in international tournaments would later earn him the nickname The Black Prince, which, as nicknames go, is a pretty cool one. He would predecease his father, but his son Richard would succeed as Richard II. Well, succeed in the traditional sense of the word. He would be a pretty crappy king. The next son was Lionel, born in 1338, who would become the first Duke of Clarence. Now, he had no sons, but his granddaughter would marry into the House of York, giving them the royal legitimacy that would allow them to claim the throne. The next surviving son was John of Gaunt, who would become Duke of Lancaster, born in 1340. We will be talking a lot more about him in later episodes, but to quickly summarise, he would become the chief advisor to King Richard II, and his son Henry would later overthrow the king, becoming Henry IV, the first Lancastrian monarch. So Philippa's second and third sons would later be the paterfamilii of the Wars of the Roses. Next was the soon-to-be first Duke of York, Edmund, born in 1341, whose grandson would later marry his brother Lionel's granddaughter, creating that strong Yorkist claim to the throne. And finally, Edward and Philippa's final son, and indeed child, was Thomas, soon-to-be Duke of Gloucester, born in 1355. Thomas was not destined to have children and grandchildren who would tear up the kingdom, but as we will see in the next show, he did contribute to the downfall of his nephew, Richard II. Okay, so to recap, we have five sons, the Black Prince, and then in order, Lionel, John, Edmund, and Thomas. And we haven't even got to the daughters yet. The first was Isabella, their second child, born in 1332, who was either named for Edward's mother or Philippa's sister, depending really on how close you think Edward and his mother were at this point. After Isabella, there was Joan, born in 1333, and then there were two more daughters who would make it out of childhood, Mary and Margaret. Now, don't worry, I don't need you to remember all of these names all at once, but many of them will pop in and out of our story, so I thought it would be helpful to introduce them now. So, for 25 years, Philippa was in and out of confinement, no sooner giving birth than becoming pregnant again. This did somewhat reduce her ability to be an active queen, but she was no couch potato either. After giving birth to Isabella in 1332, Philippa joined Edward on campaign against the Scots. The king had hugely resented the Treaty of Northampton signed by his mother Isabella, and was determined to reassert English authority over Scotland. Edward had moved the English capital to York, the great English stronghold in the north, so as to best coordinate the campaign, and there Philippa stayed, unless of course she was about to give birth. Indeed, Philippa was to follow the example of Eleanor of Castile, and be a faithful companion to her husband when he was on campaign. Now, of course, a constant travel and all that childbearing and rearing took its toll on her finances. In 1337, her father William died, and with him went her funding from home, an income on which she depended. This meant that she had to be highly efficient with her existing income from her dower lands. It is notable that after 1337, she threw the book at any poacher or illegal fishers taking the produce of her land without her permission. She also practiced purveyance, where she would send her servants out into the countryside and seize provisions at cost price or on credit, debts that often went unpaid for years. This was not very queenly behaviour at all, but necessary for Philippa to lead the kind of life expected of a queen. That is not to say that she was profligate at all, it seems she was running on a shoestring, but a little unpopularity was seen as a price worth paying by the king when apportioning funds to his wife. Why did Edward have so little money? War, as per usual. 
As I have already mentioned, in 1332 it launched a renewed attack on Scotland in what has become known as the Second War of Scottish Independence. This conflict would blow hot and cold for the next 20 years or so, but the most important moment came in 1336, when the French King Philip VI entered the fray, and then a year later seized Gascony, that English duchy in the southeast of France. This meant a two-front war, but Edward was not phased. He believed that the Scottish crown should be subordinate to his, and that the French crown should be his by right. He was in his element, but sadly this meant very little money for Philippa. Now, while Edward's wars against Scotland and France in this period are very interesting and important for the military and diplomatic future of both kingdoms, they actually don't really matter for this story, so, again, sorry for any of you military history buffs. To give you the quick and dirty version, the war with France was to go very well for Edward. After an initial stalemate in Gascony, in 1346 Edward would invade Normandy and win a crushing victory at the Battle of Cressy against a French royal army three times its size. This gained England a foothold in northern France, and would later see her capture Calais, which they would hold until Tudor times. After a Black Death-imposed pause, Edward sent the Black Prince to Gascony to regain control of the duchy, which he managed thanks to another decisive victory, this time at Poitiers. But, thanks in part to a devastating hailstorm, Edward eventually came to terms with France in 1360, giving up much of his conquered territory and renouncing his claim in return for increased lands in Aquitaine. This peace would last for another nine years, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves now. While all this was happening, Philippa was sometimes with Edward, sometimes apart, but having very little to do with military matters. She was not a warrior queen. That aspect held very little interest for her. In fact, only once did she have a great impact on military matters, and that was in the aftermath of the Battle of Cressy. When Edward had gone off to France, he left Philippa as co-regent of the kingdom, along with their eight-year-old son Lionel. Like I said, Cressy was a disaster for the French. The English longbowmen cut down thousands of the French nobility while incurring casualties in the low hundreds. Philip VI knew that he could not sustain these losses for long, and so, with Edward in France, he called upon his Scottish allies. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
to attack England in the back while they were focused on France. David II of Scotland answered the call and raised an army of some 12,000 and marched south and attacked the city of York. At this point, Philippa was in England, having just given birth to her daughter Margaret, and according to the chronicler Jean Foissart, she sprang into action. She, quote, got together all the forces she was able and, marching to Newcastle, gave the Scots battle at a place called Neville's Cross, where she took King David prisoner. The capture of the king gave the Queen of England a decided superiority over her enemies. They retired, and when she had sufficiently provided for the defence of the cities of York and Durham, as well as for the borders generally, she herself set out for London, and shortly after joined the king, her husband, at Calais. Now, this account does somewhat overstate Philippa's involvement, as it makes it sound as if she led the army herself, which, of course, she did not. But she did coordinate the campaign, and was the royal figurehead, since her preteen son could hardly be expected to do much other than be a, you know, preteen. This was not the only time that Philippa would act as regent or co-regent of the kingdom. Again, we are harking back to the Norman queens here, where the queen would take care of part of the kingdom, while her husband engaged in a prolonged campaign in the other. We don't know how many times that she did this, as records are sketchy, but we do know that she ruled in some sort of capacity in 1336, when Edward was campaigning against the Scots, and in 1342 when he was in France. Given these examples and the number of times that the king was away, I think it likely that she would have been a very regular regent for England while Edward was campaigning. This position of trust is very important, as it is significant rehabilitation for the office of the queen. England had only just come away from the rule of an immoral hussy who had taken complete control of the kingdom along with her lover. For them and Edward to trust Philippa with such power shows her influence and character. So, other than this, what was Philippa doing? Well, after having given birth to this huge brood of children, she took it upon herself to take point in arranging marriages for them, after consultation with her husband, of course. That said, both Edward and Philippa were more than usually concerned with their children finding spouses they, you know, actually liked. Now, the bane of their life in attempting to arrange a match was Isabella, their eldest daughter. Isabella was doted on right from the start, and is described by many sources being a bit of a spoiled brat. When she was three, Edward and Philippa attempted to arrange a marriage between her and the heir of the King of Castile, but she was passed over for her sister Joan. After various more betrothals came and went, she was sent to Gascony at the age of 19, where she was to marry with the son of one of Edward's lieutenants. One assumes a thanks for his loyalty and a guarantee of his future fealty. But, just days before the marriage was due to take place, she bolted back to England. One assumes because she felt that her prospective husband was too far below her station. Now, most of the kings and queens we have talked about would have forced her to go back. Remember how Henry I had forced Empress Matilda to go back to Geoffrey of Anjou? Well, Philippa and Edward did not do that. They accepted her decision and even allotted her a fairly healthy income before she finally eloped at the grand old age of 33 with a French hostage, the wealthy Enguerrand of Coucy. This appears to have been a love match, and by all accounts they had a very happy marriage. I'll come back to Joan in just a moment, so we'll next move on to their next daughter, Mary, who also got a high-status marriage to a key ally, John, Duke of Brittany. He actually had grown up with Mary, as Brittany was the subject of a war between England and France regarding the succession. Philippa took special care of John, treating him as if he was one of her own sons. Mary and John were eventually married in 1360. He was 21, she was 15. This was a good diplomatic match, but we know very little about how the two felt about each other, as she would live only another year or so before dying of an unknown illness. 
Lionel was first married to the heiress of Ulster, gaining her lands before she too died not longer after marriage. But this was again yet another very good diplomatic match by Edwin and Philippa, as it brought considerable lands in Ireland into the royal fold. Lionel's next marriage was to an Italian princess, another attempt to bring more lands into the Plantagenet fold, but this time he was the one to die, and there are very strong suspicions that his father-in-law had in fact poisoned him. So, we have a very mixed record so far. John of Gaunt, though, had a very successful marriage, marrying the daughter of the hugely wealthy Duke of Lancaster, eventually gaining that title and all the wealth associated. Edmund, Duke of York, was married off to a Spanish princess, Margaret was meant to marry the son of the Duke of Austria, but the changing political scene put pay to that, and she eventually married an obscure Welsh count. Now, what of Joan? Did she end up with the heir of the Castilian throne after being preferred to her sister Isabella? Well, her story is really very sad, and it brings us to probably the most devastating event in the whole Middle Ages, possibly all European history, the Black Death. As a human disaster, the impact of the Black Death cannot be overemphasised. Between 1348 and 1353, it wiped out something in the region of half of the population of Europe. Half. It may have even been as high as two-thirds. No family, no social strata was immune from this disease, including the English royal family. Joan had been sent in 1348 to Castile in order to officially marry her betrothed, but when they landed at Bordeaux, they were informed that the plague had spread to that city. At this time, it had not spread as far as England, and so it is possible that Joan and her party did not know what danger they were in. Quickly, though, her party was decimated by the disease, and eventually it claimed the princess as well. In all, Philippa lost three children to the Black Death in 1348, with her infant sons Thomas and William all perishing in the same year. As a mother who had seemed to care for her children in a much more modern way than some of her predecessors, losing three children in the space of a year must have been absolutely devastating for her. But, of course, that only made her one of millions of mothers to lose children to the Black Death. I'm not going to go any further into the impact of the Black Death, as it is A, not entirely relevant, and B, incredibly depressing. So, I will now move on to intercession. The image of Philippa as an intercessor, tempering some of the more violent excesses of her husband, is a very powerful one in the sources. Indeed, it is the dominant portrayal of her. Edward was seen as a good king, but this was often portrayed through a very masculine lens, and so, in many ways, the sources emphasise his more violent nature. Philippa is seen as being the yang to his ying in this respect, and there are two very good examples of this. The first comes in the second year of their reign at a tournament in London. Edward was competing, and Philippa, along with all the ladies of the court, packed into a stand to watch the king. While he was on his horse, however, the stand collapsed, throwing the king from his steed and sending all the ladies to the ground. While no one was badly injured, the king was apparently furious, swearing that the carpenters who had built the stand would be executed for their shoddy work. On this, Philippa is supposed to have thrown herself at the feet of Edward and begged him to spare their lives, the classic image of a queen begging for mercy to be shown to others a request that he acquiesced to once he had calmed down a little. The other, somewhat more famous occasion, came at Calais in 1347. If you remember, after defeating the Scots at Neville's Cross, Philippa had travelled to the port city to link up with her husband. Now, Edward had been besieging Calais for nearly a year, but despite there being little hope of relief, the city had been holding out. Eventually, however, it did capitulate, and Edward was not in a mood at all to be merciful. John Foissart, the great French chronicler of the Hundred Years' War, relates this episode at great length. 
In his account, Sir Walter Manny, one of Edward's chief lieutenants, presented to Edward six lead burgers, or citizens of Calais, with ropes round their necks, and the keys to the city in their hands. Quote, when Sir Walter Manny had presented these six citizens to the king, they fell upon their knees, and with uplifted hands said, Most gallant king, see before you six citizens of Calais, who have been capital merchants, and who bring with you the keys to the castle and the town. We surrender ourselves to your absolute will and pleasure, in order to save the remainder of the inhabitants of Calais, who have suffered much distress and misery. Condescend, therefore, out of your nobleness of mind, to have mercy and compassion upon us. All the barons, knights, and squires that were assembled there in great numbers wept at this sight. The king eyed them with angry looks, for he hated much the people of Calais, for the great losses he had formerly suffered from them at sea, and ordered their heads to be stricken off. All present entreated the king that he would be more merciful to them, but he would not listen to them. Then Sir Walter Manny said, Ah, gentle king, let me beseech you to restrain your anger. You have the reputation of great nobleness of soul. Do not therefore tarnish it by such an act as this, nor allow anyone to speak in disgraceful manner of you. In this instance, all the world will say that you have acted cruelly if you put to death six such respectable persons, who, of their own free will, have surrendered themselves to your mercy in order to save their fellow citizens. Upon this, the king gave a wink, saying, Be it so, and ordered the headsmen to be sent for, for that the Calasians had done him so much damage, it was proper they should suffer for it. The Queen of England, who at that time was very big with child, fell on her knees and with tears said, Ah, gentle sir, since I have crossed the sea with great danger to see you, I have never asked you one favour. Now I most humbly ask as a gift for the sake of the Son of the Blessed Mary and for your love to me that you will be merciful to these six men. The king looked at her for some time in silence and then said, Ah, lady, I wish you had been anywhere else than here. You have entreated in such a manner that I cannot refuse you. I therefore give them to you to do as you please with them. The queen conducted the six citizens to her apartments and had the halters taken from round their necks after which she newly clothed them and served them with a plentiful dinner. She then presented each with six nobles and had them escorted out of the camp in safety. Now you may notice that in this account the queen is pregnant, which means that this episode almost certainly did not happen, or at least that aspect is not true. But there's still quite a lot to unpack here. We have the idea that only the queen had the ability to talk the king down. Not his better nature not the chief lieutenant, but the queen. The chronicler also makes great hay with the fact that he claims that she was pregnant with the king's child. This is power at its most legitimately feminine. She is teary and gentle, advocating mercy, all while carrying out her most important duty as a medieval woman, carrying children. She also invokes the idea of the Virgin Mary, and so once again we have this idea of Edward and Philippa as the yin and yang, together embodying the ultimate joining of masculine and feminine virtue. It is a very powerful symbol and shows the ultimate in what medieval writers imagined when they thought of how queens were supposed to act. Philippa also fulfilled her requirement for being a religious and artistic patron. Perhaps her greatest legacy in terms of longevity is the founding of Queen's College Oxford, which was established in 1341. She was the first medieval queen to found an Oxbridge College and was an exemplar for her successors who followed suit in later years. She also patronised the chronicler who I have quoted at length so far, Jean Voissart, 
which perhaps explains why she has such a positive portrayal in his account. She is also described as being generous to religious institutions, all things that she would be expected to do, but the sources are really rather sketchy on the details. Philippa reigned as queen for 41 years, one of the longest serving consorts in English history, but as you may have been able to tell from this episode, information about her is surprisingly patchy. I have presented to you basically what we know about her, but there are huge gaps, especially in her later life, which which we have come to now. Philippa was active well into her middle age, but it seems that the deaths of so many of her children hit her hard, particularly the death-slash-murder of her son Lionel in 1368. She spent a lot of her time using her contacts on the continent to help Edward out in his wars, sending gifts and promises out to various foreign princes, again using her power as the intermediary between them and the king. In her last remaining years, she seems to have been very unwell, and eventually in 1369, at the age of 55, she died at Windsor. Her death is related in the Chronicle of Jean Foissart, which, although rather overflowery, is worth quoting in full. I will occasionally interrupt to do a bit of analysis. Quote, When the good lady perceived her end approaching, she called to the king and, extending her hand from under the bedclothes, put it into the right hand of the king, who was very sorrowful, and thus spoke. We have enjoyed our union and happiness, peace and prosperity. I entreat therefore of you on our separation that you will grant me three requests. The king, with sighs and tears, replied, My lady, ask, whatever you might request shall be granted. My lord, I beg you will acquit me of whatever engagements I have entered into with merchants for their wares, as well as on this and on the other side of the sea. I beseech you also to fulfil whatever gifts or legacies I may have left to the churches here or on the continent where I have paid my devotions as well as what I may have left to those of both sexes who have been in my service. So her first two requests are basically all about her debts. As I mentioned at the start, Philippa was almost continually in debt. It was really the only source of unpopularity that she had and so it is notable that this is her first concern on her deathbed. She clearly did not want these financial woes hanging over her head in the afterlife. There is also another piece of evidence for Philippa being a big religious patron here, as she clearly wants her financial commitments to whatever order she supported to be continued after her death. Frisa continues, quote, Thirdly, I entreat that when it shall please God to call you, hence you will not choose any other sepulchre than mine, and will lie by my side in the sepulchre of Westminster. So the third thing is all about securing her legacy. She clearly considered it likely that Edward would remarry, just as his grandfather Edward I had done on the death of his first beloved wife. She wanted it made clear that she was the proper queen, that Edward would lie for eternity by her side, and not whatever woman might replace her by his mortal side. We rejoin Froissart. Quote, The king in tears replied, Lady, I grant them. Soon after, the good lady made the sign of the cross on her breast, and having recommended to God, the king, and her youngest son Thomas, who was present, gave up the spirit which I firmly believe was caught by the holy angels, and carried to glory in heaven, for she had never done anything by thought or deed which could endanger her losing it. Philippa was buried in Westminster Abbey, in a magnificent tomb with a beautiful effigy of her that still survives today. It apparently cost around £3,000, a huge sum of money, and beside her lies her husband Edward, side by side, in death as in life. Philippa of Hainaut was a very popular queen, the embodiment of the acceptable face of feminine power. 
She was meek but active, a defender of those in need against the excesses of masculine power. Together with her husband, they were the embodiment of almost the perfect husband and wife team. Her personal morality was beyond reproach. After the scandalous reign of Isabella, she was a welcome breath of fresh air for those who want to keep things a little more traditional. Next week, yes, next week, I'll be releasing a little supplemental to this episode, a little short one on Alice Perez. Because, although Edward would not remarry after Philippa's death, there would be another woman in his life. In fact, there already was. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.